Hi, this is Sean Cassidy, and you are listening to the Pop Culture Preservation Society with Kristen and Carolyn and Michelle and Sean Cassidy, which is not one word, but they say it like one word. <laughs> yes, you heard that right. That was Sean Cassidy. And this very special episode is being brought to you today by our supporters on Patreon. Bonus material from this episode is going out to those people today as a thank you gift for their support. If you'd like to join this team of supporters and check out all the perks of membership, go to patreon.com and search for Pop Culture Preservation Society. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Hello world, there's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of loving is what we'll be bringing. We'll make you happy. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who know what it means to be in the groove, quite literally. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we bring you an interview with the person who has been the number one entry on our bucket list since the day this podcast began. If you've been with us from the beginning, you understand why. Today is the day that we bring you our conversation with Sean Cassidy. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. Come on, get happy. The person we're interviewing today has played roles in people's lives that he's not even aware of, in part by inspiring first crushes in an entire generation of kids as a crime-fighting, mystery-solving, part-time singer on ABC's Hardy Boys' Nancy Drew Mysteries in the late 1970s. But then he grew up, just like we all did, and he eventually made his way behind the camera to bring us decades of noteworthy TV programming, including New Amsterdam, a hospital drama that became one of network TV's biggest hits of the streaming era. He is a descendant of TV and film royalty, being the son of Shirley Jones and Jack Cassidy and the half-brother of David Cassidy, and he has continued this legacy with his writing and producing, and most recently by bringing the music of his late 70s music career back to the stage, to the delight of middle-aged women all across the nation. (laughs) Unbeknownst to him, he is the reason this podcast exists, and he has inspired at least one novel. It is beyond surreal for me to utter the words, Sean Cassidy, welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society. <laughs> Thank you, Kristen. It's great to be here. Uh, it's oh. astonishing to be here. I'm, I'm amazed that your podcast was inspired by me. We feel like this moment has been faded ever since Kristen and I jumped on a plane in 2019 for a 24-hour whirlwind trip to see our very first crush in concert. Not in a stadium, not in a theater, but a small winery in California where around maybe a hundred people gathered to hear you, Sean, perform. And Kristen and I were beyond privileged to be in that audience. Oh my gosh. And the reason this was so exciting was because the last time you had performed for your fans was almost 40 years earlier in 1980 to a crowd of almost 55,000 people at the Houston Astrodome. So we are very curious to know what prompted you to want to take the stage again and perform in concert, and were you surprised by the response? 
Uh, yes, surprised absolutely by the response. Surprised anyone at all came. Uh, astonished that you guys <laughs> found out I was playing a little winery in my backyard. I know. Uh, um, it's it's a complicated uh, answer, I guess. I I thought I was done. Um, I had my last concert was in 1980 at the Houston Astrodome for 55,000 people and a lot of farm animals. And uh, I. Uh, said goodnight, not knowing it would be my last show for almost 40 years. But I found my way to the theater and I fell in love with at first acting in the theater on the stage and then with writing uh, via my experience with playwrights. And I ended up selling my first pilot while I was acting in a Broadway show, a, a show called American Gothic to CBS. And it, it kind of lit mm -hmm. the way to 30 years of doing the job I still have. Uh, and when uh, the writer's uh, resume work uh, and stop striking. I'll go back to doing that. But um, I think, honestly, I had gotten to a point, a level of security, where I wasn't concerned that somehow uh, slipping into the old satin pants might jeopardize my writing <laughs> career. And oh. uh, not that I wear satin <laughs> pants, but you know what I mean. Um, Stand up. But I, I don't know. Prove it. Right. <laughs> I, I was, I honestly didn't know if anyone would come and I didn't know if I'd like doing it. And, and I, it had begun because I, people had asked me to write a memoir and I'd started once or twice and then felt kind of silly doing that. And I didn't know who I was writing to or why I was even writing anything. But then I realized that I missed actually engaging with people. The experience I'd had more in the theater, frankly, than I'd had doing concerts because my concerts were just scream-a-thons, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, so I thought maybe I can kind of hybrid uh, now and then in a in a show that ultimately, uh, and it's still evolving, but became more like a theater piece than a a concert mm -hmm. or you know a, an evening of storytelling. And and I found a way I think to hopefully artfully take songs that are known in one context, mostly pop songs, um, and weave them into a narrative that. Uh, not only felt organic, but was revealing about the songs and felt uh, authentic to the person I am now and more to the point to the audience. Mm -hmm. Because I guess anybody can show up and say, I want to hear to do run run and that's fine. But if you can show up and hear to do run run and actually come away with an, a different experience than you anticipated and maybe even a deeper experience, mm -hmm. um, that's a home run. And that seemed to be the result. That you kind of answered my next question, actually, because I can just day, go all night here. <laughs> you don't need us. Okay. We've got no plans. Just phone it in. Um, the day after that concert, I posted something on Instagram that said, uh, "How does a sixty-year-old man sing Teen Dream with a straight face to throngs of fifty-year-old women who used to be twelve? Because that's exactly what you did, but you did it to incredible success. And I think everybody was moved by by what you did. It was quite a moving experience." But like you said, it was an incredibly unique situation in that we all came to know each other as children, including you. You were only 19 or 20. So we were all meeting in this place that we once occupied long ago as very different people. And so you kind of explained a little bit about how you approached it. Did you think about that aspect of it when you were designing your show? Yes, 100 percent. It's what led me, honestly. I, I've, I've said this before, but it, it crystallized for me when I was when I first started doing the show at that little winery. Honestly, uh, that was supposed to be one night, 
and it was supposed to be mostly just friends. It wasn't. I didn't really think anyone outside uh, the Central California coast would show up, but people came <laughs> from all over. And not Minneapolis. Two women would yeah. fly from Minneapolis, Sean. You didn't think they'd hop on a plane? People came from Australia. It was insane. Oh my and God. Whoa. and I ended up doing four nights, and mm. it was like 150 people each night. But that kind of added up, and then I started getting offers to go play Vegas, which I had had an offer to do in 20 years, and. I didn't really want to play Vegas because I I wasn't doing like a Vegas show. I was doing right, right. something more intimate. And and then COVID, of course, came along, so my timing was impeccable. Uh, <laughs> but I I'm going to get to your question. I I about ten years prior, um, Oprah was doing her last season of shows and. They called me and asked if I'd come on the show. And they'd asked me over the years to do the show, and I'd never done it. Not that I, I didn't like the show and I thought Oprah was great, but I I was never one to do, like, memory lane pieces. I would, I would mm-hmm. happily go out and do interviews if I had a new show of my own to promote, a television show. And if they want to talk about, you know, what was it like doing concerts? It was, yeah, I'm happy to do that. But just to go out and do that didn't feel uh, productive or relevant to what I was doing. But... Yeah. It was Oprah, and it was her last season. And my wife said, "Oprah has called. You are going to meet her." <laughs> Smart woman. When the queen yeah. calls, yeah. you show up at the table. <laughs> yeah, she knew. And I want to go to Chicago for the weekend. So, frankly, I did it because my <laughs> wife wanted to do that. And way to Smart go, man. And I, I went, and they asked if I'd sing on the show, which I hadn't done in eons. Uh, so I said, "Well, get me a little piano. I'll, I'll just do kind of what I do in my living room at Christmas," you know, and. And I loved it. But most importantly, again, to your question, Kristen, I walked out on the stage and there you all were, except you in your mid 40s or whatever, a throng of women and some men who had been Hardy Boys fans or whatever. But I suddenly saw this look in the faces of the audience that felt so uh, authentic and, and, mm-hmm. and, and pure. I could not be cynical about whatever effect I'd had on these adults when they were kids. And I realized that I'd had the same feeling and felt um, like we'd had a shared experience that was unfinished and needed resolution somehow. And I didn't know that until that moment. And I left there going, wow, there's this whole world of people out there. I thought I was the only one who'd changed. You know what I mean? Yeah, but right. they've all lived a life and they've That's been married true. and maybe divorced or maybe have a hundred kids or no kids. Uh, you know what I mean? And have had three jobs. They have a story to tell me. And yeah, I have a story to tell them, but maybe they can all come together. I can be the catalyst for that. And then they can have an experience independent of me, which is obviously what you three have done. Yes. And yes. what I know many, many other people have done. And it's not that the 70s were a perfect time. I I think all nostalgia, people tend to look at everything through rose-colored glasses about the past. I was a young adult in the 70s, late 70s, and it was no more innocent than things are now. But it's viewed that way because so many young people had an innocence in them. And and so Mm -hmm. the the, the takeaway is that was a better time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it may have felt that way. Um, But what I also know is, you know, the life I have lived is not uh, one of the most gratifying things I hear from a lot of people is thanks for not letting us down. And I, and I don't know exactly what that means, but I think there's an expectation when you've had 
the kind of opening act that I had that yep. you're going to spir- spiral somehow oh, yeah. and you, yes. things are not going to end up well. Yes. And I'm very grateful that is not the case with me. Um, yep. Not that sure. it's always been easy. It hasn't at all. But uh, I, I I think that the, there is some sort of mutual satisfaction and, you know, the mutual survivor story mm-hmm. of it all. To your point, I think one thing that that was so successful about our experience at your concerts is that you um, you honored our experience, our collective experience, yours and ours together, not by recreating what happened in the 70s, but by explaining it. And you called it a storytelling experience. And I think that elevated it for so many people. And it was heightened by the fact that we were a room of complete strangers who had all felt the exact same thing at the exact same moment in our histories. And that bonded us together as an audience and then bonded us together with you. You were only, you know, 30 feet away from us on this tiny little stage. And it was a moment. It was a real moment for a lot of people. Well, I, I've now done the show, I don't know how many times, maybe 50 times, just sporadically. I've gone out and played much bigger venues than that little winery and played very big ven- venues in Vegas. And, and I, I actually really like theater, theaters. 500 to 1,000 people feels like the perfect size. I'm basically doing five shows at those kinds of theaters, which I did last summer and I loved, loved, yeah. loved. And then I have five sold out nights in, on Off-Broadway at 54 Below, the old Studio 54. The last time I was in there was with Andy Warhol in 1979 yes. <laughs> after I played Madison Square Garden. So that'll be oh an interesting gosh. reunion. Yes. Um, well, the uh, three of us will be in the audience on June the 23rd. 23rd. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, that's we a small place. to New York too. City. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm very excited you're coming. It's uh, Yeah, we are too. Yes. You we know, are. the other thing you mentioned, like the, the sort of reunion that many of you have, the other thing that's wonderful for me are – the people that don't know me from Adam who get dragged along or the husbands who don't <laughs> want to come right. who get, you know, forced to come and they have a great time and they yes. laughed. It's sort of surprising. And so you go on this journey and a lot of people come away being more engaged by the stories and the music. And I'm thrilled because, yeah. you know, yes. I, I actually wrote the show originally without any music at all. I was just going to go out and talk and, oh, wow. and, uh, my friend said, no, 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 you can't. People are going to throw <laughs> shoes at you and say, sing the do run So, but. Well, I can tell you from the experience Kristen and I had at the winery, we were so surprised at the feeling that we had when we were leaving and how touched we were. And, and then engaging with people that we hadn't known, you know, an hour before and sharing the, that moment with, with others. It's really brought people together in such mm-hmm. a unique way. And um, we are so grateful for that. Beyond the podcast, um, there have just friendships that have been born from this. Um, and I think that, I mean, if I were you, I'd feel really proud of that. It's beyond just to do run run and 55,000 screaming girls at the Astrodome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think that the trajectory of your career is just, it's just beautiful for, I, I, I'm sure there's a better adjective, but it's really what, um, what I think a lot of people would wish for, you know, you weren't done. And I think that's one of the messages we like to send to our audience is like, we aren't, we're in our fifties. We didn't know what we were doing when we started this podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're editing it. We're doing everything. It's just never too late to do that next thing and yeah. to grow and learn and explore. And 
So thank you for being an example of that for us and inspiring mm-hmm. us. It's it's mm-hmm. wonderful. Well, and can um, I just piggyback yeah. on that too? Because Sean, what you were saying about how um, you know, it wasn't just people showing up to hear you sing to do run run. Or my very favorite, that's rock and roll. Can I just tell you two really quick side note? Um, when we saw you at City Winery in um Chicago. Chicago. So that was my favorite song. I can still remember the choreography we did to it. We made it up. And so I was so excited to do my choreography. And your guitar string broke right at the beginning of That's Rock and Roll. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was like, and it just, yeah, well, it just stopped (laughs) right at the, well, come on. I was like ready to do my choreography. And like, I've taught taught it to us. I've taught it to them. And and then they gave you a new guitar. But then maybe for time, you went into a new song. And I was like, Wait, oh. what happened? <laughs> so my, my request to you, Sean Cassidy, yeah. is on June Don't 23rd. Don't do that again. At June 23rd at 54 Below, <laughs> there better be the full That's Rock and Roll. Just kidding. Well, um, there will be, what? and there will also be a full band. And, and this oh, is something, yes. I, because I've done it now like three different ways. I started with a full band, six piece. I had a sax player as well. And then... I did it with a trio. Uh, my nephew, Cole Cassidy, plays guitar. And uh, Kathleen Seek, who's an extraordinary mm-hmm. singer, a, a good friend, goes with us. And and I love doing the trio. It felt right, in the, again, in the smaller places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the only songs that I feel get a little shortchanged by that are the big rock songs, like That's sure. Rock and Roll and Hey Dini in particular. Oh, yeah. So I'm really excited to do, because it, it's sort of like the New York show is like tiered. It sort of starts small in the trio, and then the last okay. like five songs are full band, and oh, it's going to be really fun. So oh, what I'm, so I'm hearing is, one, we do get to give some sweat to the boys in the band, and two, yes. I get to break <laughs> out my choreography. Yeah. And, yes, you do. And, yeah. and two, I, Michelle gets to break out her choreography. Our why has been to bring connection, right? And and to connect who we were back then to who we are now. And what I'm hearing you say is that you're very thoughtful about that now in your shows, um, making that that connection from then to now um, through the storytelling. And I think that is just, we, we just, we think that's so well, important. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's a magic trick. Honestly, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a, it's a time machine. And I, and, but I, but, mm-hmm. If you're 20 and you come to the show, you don't need to have been there in 1978. You really don't, because one of the benefits for that 20-year-old is watching the audience. They (laughs) actually get a show independent of my show, (laughs) because they're seeing something they may have heard about. And I remember, like, I talk about Ricky Nelson in my show, Mm -hmm. because when I was a little kid, Ricky's before my time, he was like the 50s, but like the reruns of Ozzy and Harriet were on, and... And Rick and Elvis had been kind of the the godfathers. Well, you can go to Frank Sinatra, but, you know, of the teen idol thing. But Ricky in particular, because he had a television show and was from a family of entertainers. A lot of people, when I came along, said Ricky Nelson now. And and Rick ended up being on the Hardy Boys. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I talked to him because I was sort of at the height of all that. And he was... You know, went to a garden party trying yeah. to get some credibility as an adult mu- musician. And he was in transition that way. And Rick was a great musician with a great band and really fully deserving of everything beyond his teen idol stuff. And he was as big as they come on that front. Um, 
but he was very reflective. Uh, and he was in that transition period of like uncertainty about how do I find that audience again and a new one who will let me do something beyond some people call me a teenage idol, which I sing for eight <laughs> seconds in the show, and then talk about him. And, and you know, the irony of that song, of course, is that it's about how lonely poor little teen idols are. And I'm here to tell you there's a lot of stuff with a teen idol that loneliness is not part of for. Anyway. You can elaborate um, if you want. <laughs> no, but the, the, <laughs> the, I think the, the, why I'm here to tell this story, honestly, is because I got to watch him and more to the point, David in mm -hmm. my life. And my parents, my father was a matinee idol on Broadway at 18. Right. And my mother was an Academy Award winner at 25. So mm. I got to see all of the highs and lows and the holes that film, that, uh, that fame uh, fills. And more importantly, the, the holes that it does not fill and, and keep it in a, a perspective, I think. And I view, I'm a writer. So I was always looking right. at it like a journalist, even as I was going through it. I was like... Oh, this will be an interesting experience for this 18-year-old kid that I'm watching objectively. Mm -hmm. I remember right. feeling that way. Oh, God. That is so interesting. Okay, first side note, I'm named after Ricky Nelson's wife, Kristen. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, my, wow. Yeah. My parents were Ozzie and Harriet fans, and my oh. mom was a Ricky Nelson fan. And then here comes Kristen Nelson, and I'm yeah. Kristen Nelson. She was and, on the show know, for a bit, too. Voila, as they say. Huh. Um but I have always wondered, from the moment that I learned that David Cassidy was your half-brother, so we're talking in 1977 or 78, I always wondered how it was that you made the decision to jump into that shark-infested pool mm -hmm. after watching your brother go through his experience. I just wondered how that decision-making process went. I don't think it was as much a decision as there was like a train pushing me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just, there were, I mean, I am not a performer by nature. I really am a writer. I'm way more uh, internal and introverted. I, I can pretend I can get on a stage and be very comfortable, but it's not my, I don't need it. And most performers really do need it. And David needed it. My father needed mm -hmm. it. My mom doesn't. I'm more like her. But uh, I, I really think I was tired of being known as somebody's brother or somebody's son. Mm -hmm. oh. And people were going, you can do it. You're a cute kid. You can sing. You can do it. You can do it. Yeah. I can, really? You're going to make it that easy for me? I can sign a record contract at 16? Mm -hmm. Yes. And I can get a television show on my second audition? Yes. Mm. Well, I guess I should do this. Wow. But I didn't have any great passion to do it. I loved songwriting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I like to sing. I didn't particularly love all the songs I recorded at 18, but they weren't all of my choice, but some were. And, and the ones that were, I like now. And the ones I got to write, I still like. I think Teen Dream's a good song, you know? So, oh, we just, we um, love that song. But I honestly think, okay, I'm just going to get the monkey off my back. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to become famous. Yeah. And people will stop calling me David's brother or Shirley's son. <laughs> and then I'll figure out what I want to do with my life. Wow. How many years of therapy did it take for you to realize, <laughs> to get to that realization? I knew it then. I really did. Did you? I, did you? I have wow, had some therapy, evolved. but that wasn't what I needed to work through. I knew why. Because that really evolved for a, maybe an 18, 19-year-old. I was an think, old 18-year-old. You know? 
Okay. I was very old. I'm much younger okay. now. <laughs> a true story. It really was. Um, wow. And, and, you know, my show, which, again, keeps changing. The show you'll see in New York is not the same show you saw at the winery or saw it in Chicago or whatever. Uh, I, I have um, is a, a, a big new section about my dad, which I kind of glossed wow. over a bit in the early ones. Honestly, because if you're all writers, you know, you know, you, you sort of dance around the stuff that might be the most painful or scary. And <laughs> yeah. ultimately, it becomes the most fulfilling part when you finally get there, when you, you know, when you really go long day's journey into night and deal with your family. And I write about family and everything I've ever written. I just disguise it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, when you're actually talking about the real people, you know, I talked about David, which was a very moving part of the oh, yeah. previous show. And now I have a, a, a big section about my mother as well. And now my yeah. father, which I haven't done yet, but, and it's going to be uh, tough and funny. My father was very, very funny, but my father was complicated and he was dark and often scary and more charismatic than anyone I've ever known. And I got more mm-hmm. good stuff from him weirdly than even I think my mother, but my mm-hmm. mother is why I'm alive. Really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I loved an, um, the show we saw in Chicago. That's the only one I've seen. Carolyn oh. and Kristen. Well, Kristen, how many <coughs> shows have you seen? Several, three. right? Because you went three. I've seen three. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kept having to bring people. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Like, you got to see this. One thing I loved is when you sang a song from, um, I believe it was from Music Man, wasn't it? That you sang in with that big sense? No, Carousel. It was from Carousel. Yeah. Yes. If yes, I yes. loved you. Yes, yes. And then it was at the show the next night. We weren't at, but we saw this on social media, that you called your mom on stage. Yeah. And it was adorable. But we, I I just, I get such a kick out of her and her martinis. And um, she just (laughs) seems like quite a lovely and wonderful person. Um, She is really lovely. She's gotten even lovelier in her old age. She's really. Has she? Yeah, she's. You know, I guess I guess uh, you you can go either ways. You get older, you can become a grumpy old man, or mm-hmm. you know, the light of the world just sort of shines through you, and that's the way she is oh, now. Aww. She's just she's she's. Uh, I talk to her every day, yeah. and whenever I call, I like, "Hey, mom, how you doing? Great. What are you doing? I don't know. Sitting watching TV. Gonna have lunch. You want to have lunch? Okay. Sounds fun. Great. That's wonderful. Where do you want to go?" That's what she's wow. like all the time now. And, and, I, and I said, are, do you miss working? No. I worked for yeah. 140 years. You know, yeah. um, she's just, years. She's, she loves just yeah. living life and, you know, seeing her kids and her grandkids. And she's also, I mean, she's going to be 90 and she's beloved by the world. It's yes. not Icon. a bad way to turn 90. Icon. That is yes. absolutely no. right. That's right. And she's she a role model for us. all of us. Well, when yeah. I was a small child, yeah. mm-hmm. I can't tell mm-hmm. you how many times I watched Oklahoma and, you know, music. I, I, I was a very small child. And you think about how she's crossed just generations of uh, people. To this day, my daughters who were in theater adore her. You know, they're 22 and 27. And yeah. they know who she is. I mean, you say her name and they can tell you what role she's played. So, yes, that's got to be um, just kind of a lot. Um, well, that's a gift for you that people oh, – For sure, That yeah. your mother is beloved, yeah. right? What a gift. It's a it gift is. for our whole family and for her grandchildren. Yeah. We took uh, – Turner Classic Movies uh, had a film festival at uh, Grauman's Chinese, Man's Chinese. Oh, and uh, 
they were celebrating the 100th anniversary of Warner Brothers. And they called me and they said, would your mom come out? We want to screen the Music Man at the theater, you know. And I said, she might, but I said, I guarantee you the way to get her to come is invite all her grandchildren because (laughs) they've never had the experience of watching their grandmother on a big screen. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And so 11 of her grandchildren uh, came down uh, to Man's Chinese Theater, and we brought Mom, and we watched The Music Man, and I sat next to her, and... She's like 28, and she's quite pregnant with my brother Patrick in the movie. Oh, wow. Um, and they, it's a, actually a funny story. They, she went to the director, Morton DaCosta, just before they started shooting. She said, I just found out I'm like three months, four months pregnant. Are we going to get through this? She said, don't worry. You're in big bustle things, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. we'll you know, yeah. shoot you behind tables. And, and they did. And if you watch the movie, you can see you know, she's marrying the librarian behind the, yeah. the desk. And, right. But at the end... Uh, Famous footbridge scene where well, there were bells on the hill oh, till there was you, you know, and she kisses Robert Preston. Apparently, Patrick just kicked the hell out of Robert Preston in that moment. <laughs> okay, uh, and anyway, gonna have to watch. Uh, I just okay. watched that. I never for a minute occurred to me that, like, oh, she's looking a little. Eli. Well, That's yeah, I mean, she, my mother had the 24 inch waist, so as big that as she helps. got, she probably well, didn't get true. so big, but uh, anyway, but. The experience, again, the shared experience, bridge building experience we're talking yeah. about uh, of being able to watch your grandmother in a movie made 60 years ago that I was on the set of when I was mm-hmm. three, four years old, riding my bicycle with Ronnie Howard. Gosh. Uh, oh. It just, it's, it's time travel. Wow. Well, wow. there's it that connection, you know, yeah. there's Same that thing. connection. And, yeah. and, you know, we talk, like I said, we talk about that a lot. We talk about the role nostalgia plays in people's lives. Um, like we said, we started this podcast during the pandemic when people were searching for something to make them feel better. And yeah. really over the past two and a half years, we've found that reminiscing about all these things, like Kristen said earlier, that we all experienced at the same time, um, in very formative years, have really just brought people unbridled joy and that connection and has even helped us get through some really tough times. And you and your music definitely, definitely tap into that for so many people. So how rewarding is that to you 46 years later to know that, that like right now, your music from back then is helping people get through tough times? It's hugely rewarding. It's, uh, you know, you talked about like, it's never too late or whatever mm-hmm. t- to do it again. I, I'm doing something I've never done before. This isn't again. It's a new experience and it's probably the most gratifying experience. I mean, I've had similar experiences when I write an episode of television or I created a show that people love. New Amsterdam certainly mm-hmm. was uh, a very moving experience for a lot of people. I didn't create the show. It was created by David Schulner, a good pal of mine. But I was able to write a lot of the episodes and worked on all of them and, and saw how important that show was through the pandemic. What was mm-hmm. a, you know, uh, a fictional show became almost a documentary if you're writing about Bellevue Hospital, which is the largest public hospital in the country, but epicenter of uh, COVID in this country when, when COVID happened. And that was an important experience for the writing staff to be able to share our fears, hopes, dreams, concerns, neuroses, and, you know, write them through the characters to a certain extent. 
maybe it's analogous, being able to go out now at 64, uh, when I hadn't been out on the road since I was 21, and talk to people, and yes, play them a song that most will probably know, but more importantly, just engage with them and say, here we are, and life is good, and frankly, the stuff you're nostalgic about is all here right now, too. You're just mm-hmm. not seeing it, necessarily, because you're either watching too much news or being you know, misled that the, the world's a horrible, horrible place. The world is a better place now than it was in the 70s. It really is. You just hear about more bad things. My husband yeah. says that all the time. No, that but it's true. I mean, I, so I, you know, yeah. the, the, the evening news in Los Angeles did not lead with the worst thing that happened in Kansas in yeah. 1978. Yeah. It led right. with what was happening in Los Angeles. And if something bad happened, you heard about it. But something bad didn't happen, you weren't being bombarded with bad. Now you are bombarded with bad 24-7 on cable news. And we can't. And I'm not a fan of any of the shows. I don't care Uh left, right, center. They're all selling drama. And I know the difference because that's what I do for a living. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, So that's why it feels like today is worse than yesterday. And that's why there is this need for nostalgia, I think, my opinion. Uh What do I know? But... um, I, part of my message, too, is embrace today. It's really mm-hmm. beautiful. Go out and look at the trees. They're still here, and they're really nice. And they were nice in the 70s, and they're still really nice. And some of them are even nicer. In fact. Honest to goodness, that is, that's it in a nutshell, you guys. That should be on one of our greeting cards, and we can put Sean Cassidy on. We sell, like, pop, we design little pop culture greeting cards. Yeah. Go out and look at the trees. They're still here, and they're still lovely. Sean Cassidy. Yeah. I love it. There's a... I think the book is called Uncommon Ground. Do you know this book? Yeah, that sounds familiar. Uh, um, is it? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's the title. I may be getting it wrong. But uh, somebody showed me a diagram from it. You know, one thing that is different now, unfortunately, is our country is certainly more divided than it mm-hmm. was then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I hate that. Uh, again, I think we've been misled. I, I think we've been forced to take sides. And I just... I, I think fear is, has been the driving factor uh, and, and, and drama. Uh, but the, this book had this great thing, which is something, again, you guys are doing. Like you're, you're uh, let's say, a yellow person and you have these beliefs and you're a blue person and you have these beliefs. But when you actually find a common ground, you find something something you have in common. We all have more in common than we have different, for sure. Mm-hmm. You are no longer yellow or blue. You're now green because mm-hmm. yellow and blue makes green. And if you can live in the green, that's where the love is. And that is where I feel also like this idea of nostalgia and what you guys are doing and a bit of what I'm doing in the show lives. It's not just I miss the Easy Bake Oven I had when I was five. (laughs) Right. By the way, I had an Easy Bake Oven. I was about to say, but do you? Oh, my gosh. Well, God, uh, my mom wouldn't let me have one. You. Oh, I was like, really? You don't want a Tonka truck? No, I, I like those too, but I'd like to also, I'm creative. I'd like to cook things. Um, uh, brownies. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? It's like that yes. feeling hasn't gone. Yeah. Right. But we do forget things. I'm reminded of things all the time, like kid things. You, I follow your uh, your podcast on Instagram and I see pictures of stuff you put up. Oh, I forgot about that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's so fun, too, is because we, we've created a community. I mean, there are people that have become friends outside of us who've just commented back and forth because um, they have this shared 
oh my gosh, I just remembered the Easy Bake Oven too. And I baked brownies. Well, so did I with my mom. And they get in these conversations and that is so rewarding for us. And also I think we're green on on um, our account and our mm-hmm. uh, yeah. podcast because, yeah. you know, our biggest arguments on here are like, you know, Sean Cassidy or Leif Garrett. And people are like <laughs> trying to take sides on that. Do like, I that's get a vote biggest... on that one? Oh. You do. Oh, yeah, you trust do. me. <laughs> yes. Um, I know who you're going to vote for. Better. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, it's just a place where we don't get into all that other stuff. And we find this common ground where we all, like Kristen said earlier, we're experiencing the same things at the same time. Yeah. And that that can bring us together and bring such joy. And so that's been a real... Um, In that place of love. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So as you know... I support you wholeheartedly. Um, that's why I'm here. Oh, thank you so oh, much. Thank you. That it means, means so much. You. It means so much to us. Truly, it does. It's it is. It's, it's very meaningful yeah. because on the surface, it could look like what we're doing is something frivolous, but we know that there's meaning under underlying the entire thing. You're yes. talking to a guy who wore satin pants on stage. <laughs> I, I understand. I understand the fear of being uh, made to look frivolous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and that and that entire concept, I'm running into that with my book, which we're going to get to in a second. When I tell people what it's about, people can jump to conclusions and think that this is a frivolous topic. And I'm like, read the book. This is not a frivolous topic. This is about the the process of growing up. So um, as you know, <laughs> I have a book coming out this July called Worldwide Crush, which is a novel about the first crush experience, which is rarely on somebody that you've met in real life. Your first crush is generally somebody you met on TV or the radio. And the reason you know about this is because I've been quasi-stalking you <laughs> to make sure that this, that you know that this book I have the become... FBI standing by. by yes, the way. I know, just in case. In she's room, okay. Just in case they get a little... She's okay. Yeah. Listeners, right. what you can't see right now is Kristen's being led away in handcuffs. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, they got her. No, oh. just tell them you'll do the podcast. That's what we yes. think we can nab her. <laughs> Okay. They're on the floor, like yeah. down below. Just there. keep her talking. Yes. Keep her talking. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. All right. But it was just, it was very important for me that you knew that this book became an exploration of my own first crush experience on one Sean Cassidy, because that is a pivotal experience for most people. So when people read the descriptions of this completely fictional teen heartthrob in the book, he sounds an awful lot like Sean Cassidy. So, or my version of Sean Cassidy, because of course I made him up in my imagination, right? So Me I just too. Wanna, right? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that. <laughs> the, the, the perfect person. I'm just wondering, because I've been quasi-stalking you and throwing this in, this book at you all the time, how does that make you feel to know that a novel has grown out of the experience that one person had in experiencing you? Uh, it's, it's lovely. Again, I talk about this in the song I wrote, Teen Dream, which I recorded. And and when I put it on my album, everybody thought I was writing about me and my own experience, but I was actually writing about the audience. their shared experience and the projection, their shared projection on this person who just happened to be there. I just happened to show up at that moment in time when this little generation of people were looking for a person, you know, I think. And, Mm -hmm. um, 
you didn't know who I was, right? you know, but you had an idea and you put all your stuff and you talked to your girlfriends about it and you shared posters about that kid. And, and there is beauty in that. And, and uh, again, I have four daughters, so I can look at that experience through their eyes when they've projected mm. that feeling on another kid or a band or whatever. And uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think it's to be uh, protected and honored and cherished. And yeah. I actually get emotional talking about it. Yeah, And it's so important. Kristen um, is also a crushologist. That's not a made up <laughs> word. That's true. No, she's studied crushes <laughs> and the importance of them. And we've had, I mean, we've probably had three or we've actually talked to someone who is a professor of these parasocial relationships. And because we do talk on our um, podcast a lot about crushes and, and our first crushes and how important they are and why they're important. And so why was it important for people to have posters of Sean Cassidy or David Cassidy or Leif Garrett or whoever it was on their walls? It's so important in the development of children and, it's got to just be kind of a weird thing to think that you were the um, the recipient of that. But at the same time, we know and you know from being the father of girls, and we all have children who have gone through crushes, celebrity crushes. Um, we honor that here. Um, like you said, you get emotional about it. We get that because it's that important to us too. Those crushes are. But it's if you're an 18 or 21-year-old man, and you've got 10-year-old or 12-year-old fans, it's easy to go, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. And I never did that. I don't, that's, that is sort of the mystery to me. It's like, why didn't I just like, oh, silly and stupid, I want to be, you know, taken seriously or whatever. I think it's because I watched David, and David was tortured by that. David never really enjoyed his success because he wanted to be Jimi Hendrix or something. Yeah. But like, Dude, you're on a you know show where your mom's playing the tambourine. They're not going <laughs> to mistake you for Eric Clapton. So enjoy it, and you know, hopefully transcend it later. You know, you were but, an incredibly mature eighteen year old. My God. Well, again, I got to go to school, on the school of watching people deal with fame in different ways. Yeah. And, yeah. And it, it it wasn't a novel experience in my house. You know, if everybody's an electrician and you decide to go into electrician land, Mm -hmm. nobody's going to go, hey, that's amazing. What a special person you are. (laughs) Good for you. You can fix a a fuse. So you mentioned the uh, that your girls had had this same experience and and I'm very. um, My wife had the same experience, but not with me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that would be a novel right there. That would be. I want what to is that, that what is that what is that like to witness it from the other side? Who was it that your girls were crushing on? What was it like for them to have a father who had been through this? I mean, that's very complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's complicated. It's com- <laughs> it's 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 funny too. I mean, I talk about that in my show. You have to understand my kids, all my kids, none of them I stopped performing before well, before any of them were born and wow. None of them ever saw me saw me sing at the piano in the living room, but never on stage. Uh, none of them. And so in 2019, when I have four kids living at home who are under 15, 
two of whom are girls. And I say, I'm going to like put on my rock star outfit and go out and sing. They're Sad like, pants. dad must be having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> they truly think I'm, I've lost my mind. I'm a guy that goes to an office. I write television shows, some of which they see, some of which they don't. They don't quite get what that is, but now I'm going out and suddenly I'm going to be like, you know, in their view, pretend to be Justin Bieber. Right. And, and when adults come up to them and say, you don't understand, your father was Justin Bieber. Right. They're yeah. like, oh, come on. <laughs> that old guy? Not oh, possible. <sighs> so that's weird. And I have empathy for that weird experience on their end. And look, I brought my sons. My boys are like, this is weird and creepy. And why are those ladies screaming? <laughs> but then, like, my son, hey, wait a second. We can sell some T-shirts here. And they start working the T-shirt con uh, concession. Yeah. And then, like, kids are like, can we make T-shirts of us and sell them? <laughs> this is a good business. I know, they probably my, my uh, now 18-year-old son, who is going off to college uh, to get a, a business degree, he wants a Harvard MBA, no kidding. Wow. He's like, I'm going to make T-shirts. <laughs> Great. He's a smart boy. Yeah. Yes, he is. Uh-huh. That's right. So, I, it, but again, you know, I grew up watching my parents kiss other people who weren't my parents on Broadway and in the movies. Yeah, that's true. And I'd be so, sitting with my mother watching her making out with Jimmy Stewart or, God. you know. Uh, yes. Marlon Brando, and I'm, is that what's going on, Mom? And she's, oh, it's just acting. Mm, I don't know if it's just acting. Yeah. Jack Cassidy, it was not just acting. I promise. Oh, we'll see. Yeah. Sure. Okay, right, right, right. So it's a weird life, but it's mine. Yeah. Perfect. Well, we want to be mindful of your time as well. So um, I don't know what hard stop you have, but um, Kristen, I, I'm going to ask. I don't ask have you. one. Keep talking. Okay. okay. Oh, yeah. All righty. Well, I really want to, I, this is a, a, a very simple question, but I've thought about it for a long time and I've always wanted to know. Now that your kids do know about this past of yours, do they have favorite songs of yours? Does Tracy have a favorite song of yours? I have no idea. <laughs> He's shaking really? his head, listeners. He's You're just shaking kidding. his head. Nope. Go. I, I, I've never heard, Tracy has never said, oh, I love that Hey There Lonely Girl. She never, ever. That's not oh the way she God. is anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, she's kind of embarrassed, I think, frankly, by, by all of this. <laughs> uh, she's a very practical woman. Doesn't, I don't, I mean, even what her crush was one of those guys in one of those boy bands. Uh, the little one. I can't remember what his name was. Oh, that's Hanson. Hanson. No, I was thinking of Hanson. like New Kids on the Block or it's one of those. Degrees. It's New yeah. Kids or In Sync or ninety eight or, or okay. Backstreet not Boys Timberlake, or something. But it was one of those. Yeah, yeah, Backstreet and Boys. And they're something. all ten years after me, I think. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, J Jordan, I don't know Justin. Yeah, Jordan Knight. Oh, Jordan, Jordan Knight. Knight from he was New Kids. Big time, yeah. Jordan yeah. Knight. was he? Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't know. Remember, but, we're crush you know what will change their mind? You know what might change their mind? If I could teach them the choreography to That's Rock and Roll. Because yeah, I was nine. It. Well, I have video of it. You know what? I'm, next time I post it on No, no, my, you have film. You don't yes, have oh, yes, video. Film. It is film. You have film. It's on my... Yeah. It's hilarious. I'm in a black leotard. I'm in third grade. Um, I have a, a, like a little um, Tony Tennille haircut and I'm just shaking because, okay, one thing that you guys, I know our listeners would be really sad if I didn't get a chance to tell Sean Cassidy what you guys know I'm about to tell him. 
since episode one. I've mentioned it episode one and probably five or six times in the past 120 episodes. I don't know if you knew this, Sean Cassidy, but you are actually my brother-in-law. I could not, I know, did you know that I was your sister-in-law? Um, I couldn't crush on you when I was in third grade because my you are my sister's crush. The little sister is absolutely not allowed to crush on that same person. Get your so own crush. she would rip out all the Parker Stevenson posters <laughs> and give them to me. So if you want to invite me for, you know, family Christmas or anything. I mean, I, by the way, I'm certain that I am, you know, every little sister, who, you know, the older sister like David and then. I, you know, you can't have him. Okay. How yeah. about this one? Yeah. 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 No, I didn't even get that. Yeah. I didn't even yeah. get that. No. Okay. First and foremost, you are a writer and a storyteller, as you've said, and your most successful TV show has just ended its five-year run on NBC and then began a whole new life on Netflix quite successfully. That, of course, being New Amsterdam. The future of TV is changing. And this is something that we talk about quite a lot, the difference between streaming and and live TV. How do you feel about streaming versus live TV? And what role do you want to play in the future of TV? Well, by live TV, I, I assume you mean network TV? Network, network TV, network. Yes, yes. That we can watch live, yes. Um, I think uh, that streaming is definitely, it's not the future, it's the present. And um, I think that the the model has so dramatically changed and the deal uh, that the writers have is based on the old model. So that's why uh, there's a strike. And, uh, you know, I have friends on all sides of this, so uh, I don't take any of it personally. I view it all as business and I, I want a fair deal uh, for my brethren in the writers guild for sure. Um, but I don't think the people on the other side are evil. I just think that they're, you know, yeah. they have accountants who are trying to, make as much money as possible. Um, that said, I think that the future is absolutely streaming and cable and even cable is antiquated now. I mean, yeah. it's, mm -hmm. um, and the networks, uh, you know, New Amsterdam, again, I didn't create it, but it, it was probably the, the most down the middle show I've worked on. Um, and yet, ironically, it got canceled by NBC, sold to Netflix and it became the biggest show in the world on Netflix. Number one show on Netflix for a month. If you're the number one show on Netflix, you're the number one show in the world. More eyeballs yeah. than any, uh, any yes. other place now. Um, which was great and very gratifying uh, for everybody involved. Uh, I, I, the thing I love about the way uh, television has changed is when I started, American Gothic was a very dark anti-hero led serialized mm -hmm. show, which was the antithesis of what they wanted on CBS. Yeah. Uh, right. You know, there's a reason Dick Wolf and law and order and all of its franchises have been so successful because it is a formula in the best sense that it's easy to re replicate week after week, after week, after week. You don't need to have seen any law and order to tune into one and you can be engaged by that story. Uh, in the case of streaming shows, 98% of them are serialized, which is how I like to write. I like to write mm -hmm. novels in the form of TV. Yeah. You know, Charles Dickens, favorite writer. So, uh, uh, and that's how he sold books. You got to see a mm -hmm. chapter every week in a magazine, you know. Uh, but the, but the, the model then, what they would preach to us at the studios is that you can't make money with that because they don't rerun. You can't run them out of order. It was all about how is it going to play in Budapest, you know, after it's aired on CBS. Uh, 
And I was like, I don't know how to just write those closed-ended things. They feel so formulaic in a bad way and Mm -hmm. contrived. And also my dirty little secret, which I'm not proud of because it it didn't help me with writing staffs, is when I started writing, I didn't outline. I just had a kind of an idea of where I knew I wanted the characters to go, but I didn't even really know the characters until I started writing. And once I found out who the characters were, I couldn't live with an outline because if I'd written an outline in a vacuum and at the end of Act 2, it says they go and they rob a bank. Well, I, once I started writing, I get to know the characters. They don't want to go to a bank. I, they want right. to go to a bar or they want to go to a music <laughs> park. I can't take them to a bank. But it says on the outline that they robbed the bank at the end of Act 2, says the network executive. I said, yeah, sorry, but I know you like an outline because you like to know, have some level of security that the writer's going to you know, turn in something worthwhile. But that's not how I write. Uh, which is terrible, though, because if you're a showrunner, you can't tell the writing staff, just do it like me. Just make it up as you go along. <laughs> it doesn't really fly. So I've learned now, but my, again, dirty little secret is when I'm selling a script or selling a pilot and they want an outline, because they always do, I go off and I write the script and then I turn it into an outline that I hand in. Oh, because I can't do it the other way. Okay. You do hear a lot of uh, authors that do that, that they say when they start their novel, they start with these characters and they don't know where the story's going. They don't know how it's going to end at the beginning because the characters almost have to tell them. It's great. And and it's the most organic storytelling because the author is also the audience. You're on the ride Mm -hmm. and you're writing yourself into a corner that you don't necessarily know how you're going to get out of it. You may have an idea, you know, North by Northwest, Hitchcock knew he wanted them on the face of Mount Rushmore in a chase scene at the end. And Ernest Lehman, who wrote that script, basically wrote a chase sequence and then started a script to get them to Mount Rushmore. Old analogy, old example, but uh, I do that now, too. I'll get, I'll get the seed of something. Again, it's always about family, usually some hidden version of my own or my own experiences. Uh, do, you, do you ever see a show called Invasion I worked on? I, I created a show called Invasion. It was on After Lost. Uh, I have a lot of, uh, as I called them, canceled quickly, uh, cold hits on my resume. And uh, Invasion is one of them. Uh, but it was a very a well-received show critically. It was on for a season. And it was about, you know, again, sold as Invasion in the Everglades, undercover of a hurricane. Things come and they bury themselves in the Everglades. And they come out and start doing, like, body snatching things. Um, which is a very commercial way to sell it. But, uh, you know, for what I was writing about was the invasion of a new father in my children's house. You've got divorced houses and co-parenting, and suddenly there's this new interloper coming in to parent your kids. An experience, oh, I've had. Uh, God, I love this shit. So so (laughs) you take, but I, I use this analogy a lot too, like when you're selling a show, you do not lead with art. You do not go in and tell the executives, this is going to be Hamlet. It's going to be the most extraordinary piece of artistry you will ever... No, no, no. It's a show about a shark that eats people in the ocean. It's called Jaws. Okay? But even Jaws is not just a show about a shark that eats people in the ocean. That's what they put on the poster. That's how they got people into the theater. It's a show about a family coming to a new place, a new sheriff, trying to figure out what the rules are of this place, a mayor who's obviously not really to be trusted. And he's got to save his family. He's got to protect his son. That's a very primal thing to be able to write. Mm-hmm. But you right. don't put that on the poster. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. that's my. I got I got way more out of that answer than I anticipated. I'm sorry. That is fascinating. <laughs> no, that is it's fascinating great. to me. And part of it is because I aspire to be an outliner, and I have written so many outlines, and I have not followed any of them. <laughs> Good. That means they're bad. And not, that right, doesn't mean the right. outline is bad. It just means right. that it's not organic to the story you discover yes. that you're telling. That's right. And, and, the, and the, the story comes to me like a movie in front of my forehead. And I'm just writing it down. I'm just writing it down. That's mm-hmm. when you take off. That's a, yeah. You know, I, I've got an idea for a new show that I'm really, really excited about. It, but it, oh. only because I've got like a scene. And that's usually how my things like this scene is the launch pad for five-year television series in my brain. I don't know what it is yet. I don't know who the characters are, (laughs) but I'm on to something. And once I can get like five pages, ten pages in, I'm done making stuff up because I got characters now who are telling me, just get in the car and we'll drive. Let's go. You just have to listen. You just listen. Just listen to them. And again, I used to be an actor and, and I have a musical ear or whatever, you know, so I'm pretty good with dialogue and I can just go. Mm-hmm. And it, I can go into places I don't know I'm going, and then when I go there, what am I going to do? Yeah, right. I, uh, Vince Gilligan, I was told on Breaking Bad, would not write the first or the second idea the writers room had. Like for what are we going to do with Walter White? He's going to do this. Okay, put that on the board. Now throw that away. What? What's another thing he could do here? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Well, how about this one? Third, third one. Let's try that one. Because that's not the first one that comes to you. So it won't be the first one that comes to the audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Sorry. Talking with three writers. I didn't know you were all yeah, that's writers. Right. I hate um, the easy explanation. That is well, my pet right. peeve. Something Me will happen. Too. I'll be like, too easy. Right. Too easy. They didn't I'll even stop, stop reading a book when that happens yes. sometimes. It's just mm-hmm. like, ah. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Sean, is your new show, your new idea about three women in their mid-50s who start a pop culture <laughs> podcast? <laughs> if, if one of them kills the other one, maybe. <laughs> Some days. And then one of them stalks her. And then one of them gets arrested for stalking her um, her, right. her, teen her first crush, crush from 1977. Crush. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can I be the murderer? I want to be the murderer, guys. <laughs> I'm feeling a little murdery. <laughs> I'm feeling oh, no. snappy. Oh, no. What does I'm going to be the murderer. And here I thought we'd be talking about Barbies and Slinkies. And talking about, <laughs> oh, just so wait. That's what I'm more. telling you. Right. Well, I do have one question that I've posed to so many people, and you're the perfect person to ask. So with the different ways that TV shows can now um, be delivered in terms of sometimes the whole season drops on one day, and so yeah. you can just binge the whole thing. What, do writers write differently for um, sh- a show like that versus a show where you're going to have to wait a week until the next thing happens? Um can, is there a different mindset or is it the same? Would you write the same way like each episode? I, I think there is less dependency on the hook at the end of the episode, okay. you know. But you'd, every commercial break, you'd have some perils of Pauline tied oh, to the you know, right. train track yeah. and here comes the yes. train. And a lot of them were very uh, contrived. And now, uh, since most of the shows don't have commercials, mm-hmm. uh, you don't have to do that. Uh, but usually, I mean, Breaking Bad, again, being a great example, uh, at the end of the episode, there'd be something you'd want to come back for. Because mm-hmm. even though, like New Amsterdam, uh, written for network and then uh, sold to Netflix, the first two seasons were dumped on Netflix. And people watched them in a weekend. Yeah. 
which was great because the show was serialized and they were rewarded for things we'd set up in episode three and paid off in episode 17. They were rewarded in an afternoon because it's fresh in their mind, you know, but hopefully that stuff still holds, you know, in the network model too. Uh, But to your question, I don't know really that you write differently. You still have to, each episode have to have its own engine and be of a piece Mm-hmm. And you're, but you are platforming future episodes and and maybe yeah. cliffhanging things. Sure, because it's really yeah, only well, Netflix that dumps it all at once. I think because I know like um, I, my husband and I are huge fans of Yellow Jackets, and they do a really yeah. good job right now uh, because it's a week you have to wait the next week, and yeah. we we are so tempted to say let's wait till all the Yellow Jackets are released, and then we can watch them all. Boom, boom, boom. But we've gone back to that old school viewing because they do kind of end with not mm-hmm. a cliffhanger, but something that you're kind of going, oh, what yeah. just happened? And so yeah. we love watching it every Friday yeah. night because then we have to wait. I think there was something that, and we've talked about this before on the show, there is something that is lost when you get everything that you want whenever whenever you want it, as quickly mm-hmm. as you want it. There is some joy that comes from the anticipation of waiting. And there's also a collective nature to, we all watch this thing at the same time. It's a shared experience. It's right? a shared experience. Yeah. We, we have lost the water cooler moment, and we rectified the water cooler moment. When lo- okay. This is where Kristen dropped the biggest spoiler about Succession, and I am cutting it out because I don't want her to ruin it for you like she did for me. And no, we, and okay, spoiler. big spoiler. No, just kidding. Big spoiler. <laughs> no, I've seen Sorry. it. Okay, oh. she's oh going to be the one that's murdered. She's going <laughs> right. to be the one that has oh to be okay. Kelly, have you really not seen her? it? I'm so sorry. I've been waiting for Andy. That's okay. I, oh my I suspect God. that that's okay. But we'll have so to take this whole sad. part out of the episode, too. There, oh might, not, <laughs> there might be other people. Wait, Shine it's Cassidy, okay. have you... <laughs> Why do I do that all the time? I always call Sean people Cassidy. John Davidson yeah. or yeah, Chris yeah. Krakens. John uh, Davidson. Um, we had John, we Davidson, had John on. Davidson on. We just asked him and he said, okay. Wow. He Congratulations. <laughs> okay. Can we just tell we're, you how awesome we're he is? We're rarely confused. So. Well, he, he was very awesome. jealous. He's like 80. He was hilarious and so gracious and a hoot and we loved him to death. But... Have are you watching Succession? And did Kristen just spoil that for you? Because we really need to know. I have watched Succession. I've not watched it. Uh, I probably have not seen that episode, but I think I knew about that because you're See, not you the first it. whistleblower yes. I've crossed. That's right. Uh, because everybody showed up and was like, "Oh my God, did you see Succession last night?" It was the first time that it happened to me since like Fonzie jumping the shark. Who it shot was JR? Crazy. Yes. Yeah, right, right, yes. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting. They're like there's the the you know like. White Lotus was that like a year ago, and and they yeah. they catch fire like a summer novel, like everybody's reading The Exorcist, you know, yes. and uh, and wasn't doing this at all. I I hadn't watched a show since Gunsmoke until like two years ago. I swear, <laughs> I wasn't watching television Gunsmoke. because I was making television for so wow. long. I mean, I, I like I didn't see The Sopranos until like two months ago. Yeah, me too. I just missed it. Because mm-hmm. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't want to watch television. I was watching TV in an editing room all the time. I know. You're a TV writer and you're not watching television. But That's... I felt, I actually felt bad because what happened <laughs> is I'd get in a writer's room and there'd be writers 20 years younger than me and all of their, you know, the oldest show they'd ever seen was Friends. So, <laughs> oh, right. So that was like, you know, the birth of show business. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, but I realized, oh, those are the seminal shows for them. 
And those are what their references are going to be. So I realized I, I better watch these. Uh, and now I do watch a lot of the new ones when they come on. I don't watch the whole mm-hmm. series, but I'll watch. Like, I've seen five episodes of Secession. I thought it was great. I get why people are excited about it. Yeah. White Lotus, I did watch the whole thing because it was my mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Sean, we like to have a little fun with our guests, and we always play some sort of a game. So we'd like to ask you some hard-hitting questions from a 1978 interview you did oh, in boy. this respected <laughs> news source called, here it is, Teen Fever. <laughs> it's Teen Fever. And we'd I'm like glad to see I didn't you- invest in that operation. <laughs> We would like to see if you can match the answers you gave as a newly turned 20-year-old. Here's the article. Um, To to a few of the questions, okay? So I'm going to ask you the question and see if you know what you said. Um, How old did you say you were when you got your first kiss? Seven. You were three. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, we also like to do this and know. Was it um, from we also my mom? Always, <laughs> we also always from wonder Madam when we do these games with celebrities who, if the if um, the person actually answered these questions or if the publicist did. Um, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. At twenty years old, what did you say your favorite drink was? Mm. And it's okay if you get them wrong. Like alcohol funny. drink or drink no? It's, or? I will give you a hint. It's not alcohol. You were t- you were twelve. Might it be like sparkling water, like yeah, Perrier or something? It's yeah. ding 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 ding. In nineteen seventy-eight. You know That's why ex- I said that? That's exactly what this it was. Is so, it water. sounds so like nouveau riche, but bougie. <laughs> they used to Parker and I. For some reason, Perrier was like a new thing. Yeah. yeah. Like sparkling water was like a really fancy European. Yeah. Oh, like, for sure. Yeah. And they somehow, the studio must have had a deal with Perrier because that's all they would give us on the set. We'd be walking around like we'd finish a scene like hang gliding or, you know, jumping <laughs> off a cliff and they'd put a Perrier in our hand. And I remember I'd see these pictures of me on the set in like costume holding a Perrier and I felt so ridiculous. But that's what we drank. Like our, that is hilarious. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. You, you, that's, that's, right. a, that's ding, a good ding, memory. Ding, ding. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, they ask you when you were 20, what was your nickname when you were 14? Ziggy. It was Ziggy. Yeah. <gasps> Ziggy. Like still is my nickname character? to a lot of people. Ziggy Stardust oh, or Ziggy, Ziggy the cartoon character? <laughs> I'm looking for the boots. I oh, had my these- God. Okay, Stardust. Good, good. We're hoping no, it wasn't I, the cartoon character. <laughs> well, I was a big fan of Bowie's before most people knew who Bowie was because I went to this club a lot called Rodney Bingenheimer's English Disco. Oh, I was wow. underage, underage everywhere I went. But yeah. um, he would play uh, all of these British import records. So I heard very, very early David Bowie songs uh, and bought Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And I, all my friends were like listening to the Eagles and like you yeah. know, <laughs> California hippie music. I love the Eagles, but you know. Yeah, But I was like, and glam rock was like a thing, like T-Rex. And I saw a Rocky Horror Show live with Tim Curry and Meatloaf at the Roxy about oh 20 God. times. Oh I just go and go and go. I loved it. That's just wow. and, and this was this there. weird little window in time where boys, straight boys, put on makeup right. to meet girls. <laughs> you know? Sure. Because uh, yeah. it was like the thing. And Bowie was kind of the prince of that. And mm-hmm. all again, I didn't know it then, but it was this hybrid of rock and theater. Mm-hmm. All oh, very wow. theatrical. Yeah. Alice Cooper is a very good friend. Has been a friend for years and years, and he was in that as well. But 
he was he became more mainstream. Bowie was underground for a long time. Wow. Iggy Pop, too. I yeah. feel like that's a pairing that's surprising to me, that Sean Cassidy like and it. Alice Cooper were mm-hmm. good friends. Back in the day, were you guys good friends back in the day, too? He, well, Alice is older than, everybody's older than me, but uh, he, he, I knew him back in the day because we played softball. Uh, I, we played softball against each other. He had a team called the Hollywood Vampires, and uh, I was on the team, and, and we would see each other all the time. Yeah. And he's a lovely guy, really, yeah. I, I, and yeah. a very grounded, normal Mm-hmm. You know, Alice is an invention. This one is a really random question, but apparently in 1978, people wanted to know, did you love or hate wearing socks? What? <laughs> I didn't so wear many... them very often. Okay, good. The answer is so, hate. I don't know if so I hated wearing them, you... but I just well, don't think s- I did. The, the answer in the magazine says hate. That's why I wear, what do you think you wore all the time? I'm embarrassed to say, but I think I'm going to say, I think I wore espadrilles all the time. Right? Do you you even know what those are? Yes, Yes, because I wore them. Of course you do. I did too. You said, said, hey, that's why I wear canvas espadrilles. I love that you got that right. (laughs) Were they flat or with a wedgie heel? I think flat. I'm assuming Oh, he had the flat ones, I'm sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know, man. You should see oh, these well, boots. Oh, well, that's true. Well, that's true. Ziggy says some, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tom's came. Mm-hmm. Back, Tom's brought the espadrilles back about eight mm-hmm. years ago. I remember? love a good espadrille. The espadrilles okay. are very comfy. Yeah, there were these pants we wore too called Lothars. I remember oh, that would like that. have drawstring in front. I mean, they okay. all now would be called unisex. All the clothes. Yeah. Okay. Right. But that's Zubas. how Zubas. rock star boys dressed. You know. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, aspiring yeah. rock star boys. Yeah, and the sat. Well, besides, obviously, besides the satin pants. <laughs> the satin right. pants right. Okay, this yeah. one should be. I don't know if this will be easy or if your tastes have changed. But what were two of your favorite movies at age twenty that you would have maybe said? The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Didn't the say Exorcist. that, but okay, didn't say that. Really. Yeah. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. I've said that. You said oh. in 1978, you said Star Wars. No, I and, didn't. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> see, that's what we did. need to know. And, yeah. okay, well, I mean, then I you, like Star Wars, but I that would not have said that. That would have been said, a new well, movie. They said, you said Star Wars and Annie Hall. Well, Annie Hall was definitely one of my favorites. Okay. Yes. It hasn't aged as it well, says, but it was Star- uh, yeah. then. It was great. Yeah. It says, I'm reading straight, I'm reading straight from um, Teen... Grooves presents Teen Fever. It's not just Teen Fever. It's Grooves presents. It says Star Wars and Annie Hall are his favorite movies. Two more questions. What was something you did when you were feeling playful? You're never going to get this one. If you get it, I will be astounded. Because I was never feeling playful. This is hilarious to me. <laughs> he uh, was too old. Do you I was. Know what I wasn't you would playful do? at all. Well, I'm, I'm way playful now. But not okay. Then. Well, maybe you maybe you do this now. You'd shoot rubber bands across the room. <laughs> That's made up. Somebody made what that. What a up. radical kid I was. <laughs> yeah. Really, right? Right? Yeah. Okay, and lastly. I shoot rubber bands. Yeah. I <laughs> guarantee you they invented that. Oh, of course they did. I'm just going to read you a couple. You're, yes. He's fascinated by While danger. While I was at Studio 54, I was shooting yeah, right. rubber bands <laughs> across right. the room. He's, he's fascinated by danger. He wants to get a pilot's license and fly. Never in a zillion years. <gasps> Fear of heights. Never what? in a million years would I have they said I want a pilot's license. Oh, my Fever? gosh. 
They lied. They lied. I think there's a lawsuit in that. Okay, last question. Um, Who do you think you said you would love to do a love scene with? Jacqueline Bissett. Oh, that was a great answer. You said Catherine Ross. Catherine Apparently, Ross, too. According. Do you think her, too? <laughs> what okay, was Catherine well, Ross? Julie Wait. Umar, Catherine Ross, Catwoman. Jacqueline Bissett were my three crushes. Okay. And oh, Anne Margaret when I was like four, when I saw Bye Bye Birdie with her in that dress. Well, I was going to say, maybe yeah. she kissed you at age three. Maybe she was a family <laughs> yeah, friend and she kissed you at age three. Well, what's funny, this is true. When I took my mother to this Turner Classic movie thing, they were honoring Anne Margaret as well. They were running Bye Bye Birdie. Oh, nice. And the woman in charge of all of it called me and said, he, I was with mom and we're coming down. And she said, I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm here with Anne. Anne Margaret, I said, yeah. I said, will you tell Anne Margaret that I had the biggest crush on her when I was like four or five. She's the first person I ever saw on the movie screen. First image wow. I ever saw in a movie was like 100 foot Anne Margaret in that orange dress shaking at me. <laughs> and I've never forgotten it. Please tell her Sean Cassidy said you were his first crush. And Anne Margaret says, oh, that's very sweet. Oh. Had no idea who I was. <laughs> and by the way, again, She's probably heard that about eight billion times. About the dress, because like, yeah. like I know because like when you know people come up to me and say, "You're gonna never going to believe this," <laughs> but I had your poster <laughs> in my room. We really? did not. We did not say that. Have you know the three of us? You're did never going to believe this. <laughs> what a coincidence! Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, yeah, we have just one here. last question for you, Sean Cassidy. And I have been chastised. They're like, his name's Sean. It's not Sean Cassidy. It's a funny thing that <laughs> way, hard. isn't it? I know. <laughs> I, yeah. One more question for you, Sean. What is next for Sean Cassidy? Well, I guess shaving. No. No, oh, no. we okay. really Leave like it. it. Oh, really? It. You're my test audience. Yep. We I, do like, I it. like it too. Unanimous. And I, I'm very comfortable. And for, for those of you who can't see me, I have Santa Claus's beard. Yeah. Uh, I like it a lot. It's very comfortable. Um, um, but I don't look like Sean Cassidy. Yeah, uh, but you yeah, look like you. Yes, you, you look do. like you. Yes, yes, you do. Yes. I love it. I All love right. facial hair, though, so I think it's great. <laughs> you don't. And by the way, listeners, he does. He's not sitting here with David Letterman's beard. Like no, he says, Santa right. Claus's beard. Let's understand. It's very trimmed. It's very lovely. It is. Yeah, he's Thank looking you. very Thank nice. You. Okay. What's next? Is that your question? Yeah. What is yeah. next not for you? What is What's your, next? What your, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well. When the strike's over, I have two or three projects. I literally had, like, projects ready to go out the gate. Oh, God. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, with some really cool people involved, partnered with some really great people that you will know. Uh, I have two or three of those, depending on how you count. And one of them might see the light of day because that's the way the business is. Okay. Um, I am going on the road. Let's see if I can remember my... Uh, my itinerary. Well, yes, I we'll can. Do your, what? Hey, we'll you know do what? your itinerary for you. We'll no, put all that in I can pull up okay, my calendar right. right here. Okay, okay yeah, here we are. He's got uh, his I'm going on tour. I get to do this occasionally, and I really enjoy it. And I'm going to do the, a version of the show you've seen. It's still in process, still evolving. Kent, Ohio at the Kent Stage, June 11th. Albany, New York at the Egg, June 13th. Beverly, Massachusetts, June 15th, which is basically Salem, Newton, New Jersey on the 16th, 
and Munhall, Pennsylvania, which is basically Pittsburgh, on the 17th. And then, on Father's Day, I'm flying into New York, hopefully seeing a kid or two. And then I start rehearsals, because we're expanding the band, for five sold-out shows in New York uh, at 54 Below, the 21st through the 25th. And our hope is that uh, we may take another version of the show to Broadway. Oh, come so on. That, oh, my that's, goodness. Well, uh, girls. Well, yeah, girls. Back New to New York, York trip. we go. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's, uh, that's my evil plan, and I'm sticking to it. Wow. And people, we're here to tell you that this show is worth it. You it's need so to go. Oh, yeah. It's not a concert. Like you said, it's not a concert. It's more than that. Thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate your time and your talent and the role you played in helping us grow up. And we look forward to seeing you again in concert in New York City in June. I look forward to seeing all of you, and I'm happy you all grew up so happily. Sean Cassidy's full concert schedule and to get tickets, visit SeanCassidy.com. As you heard, we'll be going to a show in New York City on June 23rd, and we cannot wait. If you're going, please find us and say hi because we would love to meet you. But even if you're not going to the concert and you live in the New York City area, we'll be hosting a get together to meet all you good people and say thank you for all of your support. You are all cordially invited to a retro picnic in Central Park on Saturday, June 24th. B-Y-O-L-B, bring your own <laughs> lunchbox, and we will supply the ding-dongs. Yummers. Go to our website, poppreservationists.com, for details. We actually have a few opportunities to meet you this summer. After Worldwide Crush is released on July 11th, we three podcast hosts will be hitting the road to celebrate you and us and this book and all of our first crushes. We'll be in St. Paul, Minnesota on July 12th, Downers Grove, Illinois on July 15th, Cumberland, Maine on July 22nd, and back in Minneapolis, Minnesota on July 30th for a celebrity crush book party and a book fair for grownups. Remember the Scholastic Book Fair? Yeah, we do too. And we're bringing you a grown-up version full of stickers and posters and retro-themed gifts and books, duh, so start saving your allowance now. Most of these events require registration, so again, please visit our website, poppreservationist.com, for details. We would love to see you. Will there be ding-dongs at the grown-up book fair? Yes! Always ding-dongs. Always ding-dongs. I'm there. And today's conversation with Sean Cassidy was made possible by the monetary contributions of our supporters on Patreon. This week, our supporters got a doozy of a gift in the form of a sneak preview of this conversation with Sean. And there's more coming. There are outtakes that didn't even make it into the episode, but we're picking those up off the cutting room floor and sending them directly to the inboxes of our Patreon supporters. That's our thank you gift to you for helping us make this happen. If you'd like to become a supporter on Patreon to get in on this bonanza, just go to our link tree on Instagram or our website and click on the tab that says Patreon. In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast, courtesy of the cast of Three's Company. Two good times. Two happy days. Two little house on the prairie. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, everyone. <laughs> 
The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you.